It was great. There was one point where I, like, was explaining it to him, and he didn't really get, like, the kind of Lambda-Lith thing about how, like, they all ended up in one giant handler. He thought we were actually, like, deploying, like, all these, like, Lambdas and, like, different microservices. And then, like, when I, like, it kind of clicked in his head, he was like, oh, okay, cool, cool. I thought you were crazy for a second. Welcome back to the Full Stack Jamstack podcast. Today, we have got... Rob Cameron. We're very excited to have you, Rob. We'll be talking exclusively about Transformers and retro gaming for this episode. Yes, excellent. Hello, everyone. Thanks for having me. Why don't you tell the listeners a little bit about yourself, what your current role is, and then after that, we can kind of get more into your into your background. Yeah, sure. Uh, I'm Rob Cameron. You'll know me as Kanakin on GitHub and uh, Twitter. I'm currently on the founding team of Redwood JS, along with Tom Preston Warner, Peter Pistorius, and David Price. So I'm the elusive fourth member. I've known Tom for almost 15 years. And he was like, hey, I'm working on this, uh, this Redwood JS thing. It's kind of like Rails, and I'm a, a Rails developer. So I was like, hmm, curious, curious. So then he kind of showed me what they were doing, and it felt like, you know, at the beginning of Rails, where it's like, you've got this little nugget, and no one else knows about it yet. But there's like something super magical there. And I was like, I can get in on the ground floor of that, so... Yeah, after his sales pitch, I was all on board, and I've been on it since, I think my first commit was like September of 2019, but then I did some other side work. Technically, I'm actually employed by Tom. We can talk about that more. He has like a nonprofit that I actually work for. So I did some other nonprofit stuff and then came back basically like in January, I think, of 2020 and was Redwood at least 50% of my time. So that's when my, my commits really started. One of my first big tasks was writing the tutorial, which I think is what we're going to talk about, right? Tutorial-driven development. So that was sort of me. So I wrote that tutorial, which helped drive the actual development of the framework itself. Awesome. Yeah, no, we're definitely going to get into all those things you mentioned. And the tutorial-driven development has been something I've talked about on almost every podcast I go out and do about Redwood, because I'm just a very outward focus in terms of like just telling people about Redwood and explaining it to them and explaining the tutorial and kind of how important it is and how important it was for my own personal story as well and getting involved in, in Redwood and how it's been something that has really been something the community can rally around, I think, as well, in a, in a really cool way. Like, Claire's talked about how she went through the tutorial. Before we get into any of that, though, I don't know, how did you first get into programming? What was your, like, very first programming language, first program you wrote, that kind of stuff? The very first program I wrote, and I wouldn't say wrote like I created the code myself. Copy-paste counts. I would just read it out of a book and type it in, and that was on my dad. He had a Tandy TRS-80 Model 3. Those are the old computers you could buy at Radio Shack. And so I was probably like eight or nine, and he had plenty of programming books laying around. He, he was a chiropractor, and he wrote the software for himself for like invoicing people, basically. So keep tracking of his patient records. I assume they probably had basic software then. You could buy on a floppy disk and install it, and that was like your office management software, but he just wrote his own. So he had all these programming books laying around, and a lot of them were just like little fun games, like here's tic-tac-toe, and here's like a little skier going down a slope. So I would get this book and open it up, and I would just sit there and read the book and type the code in, not having any idea what I was doing. <laughs> and at the end, you'd type run, and you'd had your little skier going through the thing. And I actually have the first programming book I remember from my dad. It was this orange-covered book. And I found it at a bookstore in Portland, and I actually have it on my shelf back here. So that's like my little history thing. I'll have to bring that out on one of our next Redwood meetings. Uh, so that was my first one was basic. But the first language I kind of wrote myself and like knew what I was doing was language, was more like HTML. So in college, you know, everyone has a home directory and you can have your own web pages up, like presented on the, the school's internal sort of web server. No, this is not a thing I ever had or knew many people who had. That's, that's a thing. As far as I know, everybody got it. Like I, I started kind of going down the CS path, but it was before I had actually like declared my major. I think even in the first year, everyone had like a tilde. Mine was tilde R Cameron and it was at like CS dot buffalo.edu or something so you had a home directory and it would be a publicly served web page if you wanted yeah we got an email address but we never got a home page definitely not once you figure out how to do it like i'm assuming 90 percent of people never really looked into the website of it i guess but somehow i got in there yeah i had a web page and it was like a mortal Kombat fan page i loved mortal Kombat at the time so i had like a, everyone's profile and all their moves and everything like that i basically like taught myself html javascript i think existed at the time but it wasn't really like a thing people just did. It was like a weird curiosity for making like a Windows 3.1 desktop you would make out of JavaScript. DHTML, they used to call it back in the day, D dynamic HTML. So you could drag and drop things, but I wasn't into that yet. And I don't think CSS was even a spec yet at that time. I'm writing my own stuff at that point. 
my first quote unquote real language, I would say, would be Cold Fusion. I don't know how many people remember that. I've heard about it, but yeah, yeah what exactly is Cold Fusion? So it kind of coined that term, it used to be a rap, rapid application development, and that's kind of what Rails started out as. That was like the term du jour that everyone kind of used with rapid application development. But Cold Fusion sort of pioneered that. So it basically looked like HTML tags, but it would start, start with CF. So you'd have like, for conditionals, you have CF if and CF else, or CF for for like a loop, or CF output when you actually wanted to interpolate a string back onto the, back onto the screen. So you're writing HTML tags in your HTML, but then a server would run through that HTML page first, parse out all the all the cold fusion tags, turn it into whatever the output would be, and then you'd serve the final HTML page. And you could even have CF query and you'd write SQL right in line. So it's basically like an, you'd have an HTML page with SQL and conditionals and you know dynamic stuff all in there, and it would get compiled down to HTML and you're back in HTML land. That's so interesting because I've heard of people talk about cold fusion before and I've never really heard it explained before, like actually really what it was, but now that you're explaining it, it makes sense. Because people always talked about it as something they did for a job, like they were paid to write Cold Fusion, and it sounds like that's because it did a bunch of stuff and it made it really simple to do. It caught on a lot in like governments for some reason, so a lot of times if you go to a government webpage or like a .gov page, if you see the extension is .cfm, that's a Cold Fusion. They call them like Cold Fusion Markup, I think, CFM or CFML, Cold Fusion Markup Language. So every once in a while, you'll go to a webpage and you'll still see CFM on there. At one point, I created my own framework. There was a, a Cold Fusion framework called, it's still out there, Cold Fusion on Wheels. It was like a, a play on Ruby on Rails. <laughs> As Tom says, the worst name ever. But uh, I believe it's still actively maintained. Like, it's still out there and people still use it. It's still updated, it seems. Yeah. When I searched Cold Fusion, the first article was, Cold Fusion, it's not dead, it's here to stay, and it's alive. Yeah, yeah, it's still out there. That's the type of article you see, and it means, yes, this is dead. The conclusion you should draw is this thing is dead. <laughs> it's propaganda from the Cold Fusion, big Cold Fusion team. It's like, you know, people who say, like, Meteor's not dead. It was originally a guy, uh, Jeremy Allaire, I think was his name, so it was Allaire Cold Fusion, and then Macromedia bought it. Macromedia, the ones who did Flash, or eventually bought Flash, I should say. And then when Adobe bought Macromedia, so now it's Adobe Cold Fusion. And it's a server product, and at the time, you know, when I was doing it, the one install was like, I don't know, $1,000. So it was kind of an outlier. You actually had to pay for this software to run, whereas everything else was basically open source right at the time. But you're paying for ColdFusion server to actually run and serve your code. I think there was a development one you could run for free, but only respond on localhost. So if you wanted to publish to the internet, you had to pay for server. From ColdFusion, got into Ruby on Rails, and it kind of had that same feeling. It's like really easy to get an app up and up and running, but it was much much more organized, much more proper. It just felt, felt better. And the Ruby language, it, to me, is still like my favorite. It just feels much more like how my brain works. And then from a Ruby on Rails, and then that brought me into the Redwood side, using sort of some of the Rails concepts, convention over configuration. That was the big mantra for Rails. So we're trying to bring a lot of that into Redwood as well. So although the languages, of course, aren't the same, Ruby and JavaScript, but a lot of those concepts that Rails introduced we're sort of bringing into the JavaScript world now. It's funny how you say government websites using ColdFusion. The UK government is actually quite modern and progressive. They use React. They have their own React. I think it's a framework they've built. I'll post it. It's it's all open source on GitHub. But for a standardized government like system, it's pretty good these days. Everything through the government now uses this interface. It's pretty sweet if you've never had to think about it. I feel like here, kind of every government's like, Every state government, every city, everyone's on their own, so they all just kind of do their own thing. And I, I assume at the time, maybe it's Cold Fusion just because governments are the ones who had the money to pay for Cold Fusion licenses, so they could run it. What's the other language most governments use that's still around, but what's cool? It's a joke, not most guitar COBOL, but no, most do not use COBOL. <laughs> I had a lot of US governments use COBOL. A single article was written about a single place in New Jersey that was using COBOL, and people spent a week talking about it. <laughs> <laughs> I haven't seen that article, but I, I mean, I've never seen any COBOL stuff myself, but I've heard it's not great to work with on a daily basis. We're here to obviously talk about what you've done in Redwood, and one of the biggest things is the tutorial. When I first learned Redwood, I think it was like 0.8, the first tutorial was there. And I have to admit, I went through it and then never looked at it again. I don't think I've actually ever looked at it again. I've just kind of scrambled my way since. And now, part two has came out. What does that involve over the first part? 
part one, well, let me go back to part zero. So step zero was sort of the philosophy of Redwood. And there's a, there's a readme that's still up there now. And Tom sort of wrote that out. He was on a, on a plane and he wrote out his sort of vision for what Redwood, what he wanted Redwood to be. And as part of that, it was not only, you know, this, this front end and this back end website and this API side, they were talking to each other, speaking GraphQL, sort of this common tongue between them. But then also just tools for development itself. So uh, Storybook, which if people aren't familiar, sort of lets you uh, build your components in isolation. You get a nice little UI interface. You'll have a navigation tree on the left side, and it's basically all of your components in your app. And you can view just that component in isolation on the web page. And you can build out your whole component right there in isolation, and then it looks good. You like the way it looks. You can make um, variations of it. So maybe here's one with you know this prop passed in versus this prop and how it's going to change the appearance. Get all that figured out, and now when you're ready, plug it into your app. So that's the storybook. And then Jest, which handles the testing. So you have UI tests. You have unit testing. We're doing some testing with the database, which we'll talk about in a minute. But at the time, this is just part of Tom's vision. We had no idea how this was going to actually become integrated into Redwood. No one had ever done that before, as far as I understand. When I wrote the first part of the tutorial, we hadn't figured out Storybook and Jest yet. So part one was just website, API side, talking GraphQL, building components, talking to the API, getting data out of the database. Deployment was also in part one, though. That's worth pointing out as well. Yes, deployment was. So that's, that's one thing we wanted to do. Right? You can build the whole app, but if you can't get it out, it doesn't do you any good. So our very first deploy target was Netlify, just because Tom had been really interested in them. He was very bullish on Netlify and how easy it was to deploy. So we figured out how to deploy on Netlify. It worked great. And then, yeah, part one was out and in the world and ready to go. And a lot of people you know, deployed the first Redwood app thanks to the, that first tutorial. And I should say, it's building a blog. So we thought about you know what's, what's sort of a common application that most developers would probably be somewhat familiar with, and we settled on a blog. A blog probably isn't the greatest like example of the Jamstack itself. Sorry, I should say, wasn't the best necessarily the best app to build with Redwood because Redwood was meant to be like this super dynamic talking to a database. It's a great example for the Jamstack, but the whole point of Redwood is we're trying to push the Jamstack further. So by saying, here's this old application that you can already build with the Jamstack, it's not very exciting. It's like, but you're saying this is a this is a step change into what we can build. So that's why there's a disconnect there. And that's nice to teach, but we always have to keep saying this isn't quite what Redwood is actually made for. Right. We wouldn't say, yeah, if you're going to build a blog, build your blog with Redwood. It was just the fact that a blog was sort of a common application that most people were familiar with. And here's how you would do that in Redwood. A blog is ideally, right, every page is basically statically generated because it's never going to change, which is what you would use the Jamstack, the classic Jamstack for. But for the full stack Jamstack, you wouldn't necessarily go that direction. <laughs> Again, it's just a really simple common app that's easy to build and sort of people have this like a common language there. People understand when you're talking about blog things. So that was part one. Part two then was like, okay, now let's, and if we're staying on this blog path, let's add a comment engine. So we had a comment engine but we're gonna build this common engine using Storybook and Jest. So now Storybook and Jest integration is ready in Redwood. So now here's how you actually do it. So we build out the common engine in Storybook, ignore the rest of the app, Don't. there's no API, ignore all that stuff. Just build the comments as you would. You can mock out the API as if it was there, but you're not really using the API. And then we write a bunch of tests to verify that that functionality is still working. And you run your tests, see so your tests are green. Great, now plug that common engine into the real app, redeploy, and now you have your common engine. Part one was like for the users, here's how to build the app that users are gonna use. And then part two is like for us, the developers, it's like how to build the app quicker, smoother, and then how to verify your functionality keeps working with testing. A lot of Everfund is sadly not tested in any functionality. So, you know, when you change something in that area, you go, oh, just go check it works. And it's really bad, but I think there's always a fine, fine line between getting something out in the world and getting something perfect in the developer experience. What do you think? Do you think Redwood has got it right now? As in, I'm not spending too much time in the developer land to still make sure things ship. You can completely ignore the storybook and just stuff. You don't have to use any of that. Uh, but I feel like the additions we've added on there make it more pleasurable to use, I should say. Like testing in the JavaScript world, I still, to this day, you ask someone, like, how do you test this? And everyone's kind of like, I, I don't know, actually. <laughs> Here, go search Google and figure out how to do it. Like, it's not really like test, the testing culture isn't really like embedded in the JavaScript world yet. Like it was in the Ruby world. It's kind of like if you're doing Ruby, you're just doing testing. That's just the way it is. Like everyone has sort of accepted that. I think there's pockets of it in the JavaScript world. If you look at someone like Kent C. Dodds, he's made a huge name for himself in testing JavaScript. I think I agree that it's not as big as it needs to be and as it was in the Rails world. 
but I think that there's kind of like people who are like pushing in that direction and when I start talking about testing Redwood like they get fired up because they're just like oh someone's like building testing into a framework finally there was jest which is i guess you call it a framework for testing but that's it it's just it's just the tests right there's no like front-end framework that wants you to test in here and gives you tools to make testing easier so i think we're kind of the first ones to do that so something i'm curious about and that i've thought a lot about because i've spent a long time with both tutorials the first tutorial and the the second tutorial as you've been building it out and to me, I'm trying to think of how we would be able to eventually have some sort of integrated version because I think the problem with the way we've built it out and the way we've had them separated right now is that you build the whole application and then you learn how to do the Jest and the Storybook stuff. I think ideally we could bring in the testing and Storybook stuff like right when you first learn the cell kind of stuff. And then before you get into the contact form, that would be in kind of my mind where I'm thinking it might make sense to sequence it. And then you could have it integrated kind of throughout as you then build out the contact form also. So, yeah, I don't know. It's uh, do, you, do you have any thoughts about that? Well, I thought about that, too. And, uh, you know, like you're saying, like basically combined one and two into just one single flow of building the app all the way through. But then I was thinking, you know, with Redwood especially, it's like uh, for a lot of people, it's a lot of new concepts all at once. It might be a little overwhelming because I, when I first started in Redwood, I had never used React. I mean, I built one little sample app with React like six months earlier. So I was learning React, GraphQL. At the time, we had Nexus in there, which we've since pulled out. Prisma. So there's those four major ones. And then you're going to add Storybook and testing on top of that. Like, and learning all of that simultaneously seems like a lot. Like, if you're, all in, if you're in all those ecosystems already, it's no big deal for you. But if you're just starting out, that might be a little much. So I kind of like the idea that, you know, Here's one subset of tools you can build a complete app with. You kind of get used to that. And now, oh, here's some additional new tools you can add on. And it's sort of integrated with the stuff you already know. And it's not as overwhelming. So right now, I kind of like it the way it is. But yeah, we should, talk, we should get together and talk about that and see if that would make that even better. That's basically what I'm kind of thinking. Because what I did when I wrote my first look at Redwood series, what I did is I essentially watched the video tutorials. I didn't really read like the docs tutorials. I watched the video tutorials beginning to end and followed along with that to build out the project. And then as I was doing that, I screenshotted everything, like literally every single terminal command, terminal output code, and like anytime anything changed in the browser and then sequenced it and ended up doing two posts for each video. So there's four videos and I ended up with eight posts. So each got split into two posts and it helped me basically break the whole thing down into pieces in my head. Because you go from setup and pages to layouts to Prisma to cells to contact form to GraphQL to authentication to deploy. So like I can still just think of the whole thing as a linear sequence in my mind now. And as I was giving presentations out, like the first one I did, I did parts one through four. The second one I did, I did parts one, two, and eight. And then the third one I did, I did parts one, two, three, four, and eight. So now it's like I was slowly building up more and more pieces of it where I'm essentially internalizing the entire thing and can do it almost all just like from from memory. <laughs> so I'm kind of like thinking how to integrate basically both tutorials into some sort of long book is kind of what my where my brain is at right now with this. I guess if you're writing it as a book, it maybe it wouldn't be as tough. I, I mean, I guess it's no, no different than reading it online, right? Where you can flip back if, you, if you're getting confused and you're seeing too many concepts, you can always go back where you were and kind of start over. See, I could totally be a thing. That is possible. Hmm. But what are you going to do when we add part three? This time it's a Western. <laughs> I have an idea for something that should be in part three. Meshing multiple GraphQL APIs into one endpoint. It's something that you think about, but then you don't. Because Redwood's GraphQL API is great. But what happens if you want to use a service that also uses GraphQL? Then it starts getting quite complex to manage both schemas. There's multiple ways to do it, like just passing through functions, for example. So you call your Redwood, then your Redwood calls their GraphQL API. But the best way would be to use something like GraphQL Mesh that would combine multiple GraphQL APIs for you. So you could call multiple API sides as well. Mm. But you're thinking you'd want that integrated into Redwood itself. Yeah, because really interesting concept i want to host all of the strings in my redwood application in a cms well redwood is a bad application for cms's 
because CMSs have GUIs and that's why I want to use a CMS. And if for me to build my own CMS is a lot of effort. So I looked at something like Graph CMS that has a very nice interface and a GraphQL endpoint that you can just pull the data from. So after my experimentations, you could merge Graph CMS and Redwood to then in one cell, pull the strings from the CMS and the database code from Redwood. In my tests, it's worked out really well, except for GraphQL Mesh is currently early and there's an authentication bug, meaning you can't do protected calls right now. Huh. I mean, if if we did GraphQL Mesh, if it was natively handled by Redwood, then we would totally add it to, add it to the tutorial. I think for now, like the tutorials are always going to be just Redwood functionality itself. We're not going to like, yeah, 90% of people will probably want to integrate with a third-party API, but we had that as like a cookbook article because that's like a here one-time thing. Here's what you want to do. It's not really like a part of core Redwood itself. Unless we added some kind of tooling that made that easier, then we would totally roll that into, into the part three of the tutorial. Do you have thoughts about what you would want to be in part three of the tutorial? I don't think this is necessarily written up in the readme, but it's another thing that we were thinking about was, um, you know, React has, I don't know if you've seen like React, I forget what it's called, React Loader? Programmatic loading states where you get the little gray swish bar with a little, you know, little thing sliding through it. It's a skeleton, sorry, like it's, it's a skeleton, right? We have like the little gray circles and gray lines that kind of represent sort of like the visual layout of your page. It's React Skeleton, I think is what it's called. Yeah, or Skeleton Loader or something like that. Yeah, it's like skeleton loading. Right, so we want to bring that into Redwood, and we're considering that. I, the initial thought on part three is it's like the optimization part. So it's going to be stuff like this. Like we already provide cells have a loading component, right? And I mean, we don't give you any special helpers in there other than they just write some text in like loading dot, dot, dot. <laughs> so we want to have that like skeleton be sort of integrated into that. So it makes it really easy to like draw a skeleton as part of the loading state. So here's how to do your loading state with Redwood. Aldo, who's another guy on the core team, he's talking about, he calls it Redwood at scale, which is handling caching and caching and validation and stuff like that. So eventually we'll have tools in Redwood to, you know, to denote how long something should live in the cache for. So we'll probably have that in the tutorial, maybe some kind of uh, database optimizations or GraphQL optimizations. So any, anything that like optimize your, your app sort of like, you know, premature optimization is the root of all evil. So we didn't, we didn't optimize in parts one and two, but now part three, now we're ready for the optimization. And here's sort of like you're in production, you want to speed it up, make it faster, make it, you know, smoother use. That's the, the part three focus. Something that I think about is how you could turn the tutorial into a kind of choose your own adventure. So I was talking about how I had separated it out into eight pieces and piece seven was auth and piece eight was, was deployment. So I thought about how you could basically have one, basically the deployment will like fork off in different paths and the auth one fork off in different paths. Because the way we have it right now, we have one canonical tutorial that has one canonical way to do auth and deployment. And then there's all this stuff in the docs about how to do it in other ways. But I think it would be cool that you could basically go through the tutorial, but choose the tech beforehand. So you get the same tutorial experience, but with whichever tech you want to use. Yeah, I can see that with deployment working really well, right? Because we have, what, four, four or five different deployment targets now. So you can kind of split off into how you want to deploy. It's a harder question than that because there's different ways to deploy the front and the back end and different ways to combine the front and the back end because you could do... Netlify with Heroku or with Azure Postgres, and then you do the same thing with Vercel. So it's like, you know, there's there's so many different combinations. Or you do Superbase, but with different front ends, you know? Right, right. Or you could do all in one deploy target. So yeah, there's there's so many ways to kind of like section off into different ways, the different tech that people might want. And like, I see some docs that what they have is they'll have like a way that you can just switch everything from like JavaScript to TypeScript, which is something that I know. Chris would love to have in the Redwood docs. If you could just hit a button that would turn all the examples into TypeScript automatically. Like how sweet would that be, Chris? Very. Prisma does that. Prisma's one of them. As I like to say, we encourage and would happily look at any PR that provides that functionality. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's, that's what I tell Chris every time we start suggesting all this cool stuff. I'm like, wow, it'd be really cool if any of us would build this. So many, there's so many things you could do with it and it's just, like me coming from my background as like a teacher and seeing like the way you've built this out, like do you have any education experience or like curriculum designing experience or pedagogy? Like do any of those terms even mean anything to you or do you just do this intuitively? Uh, yeah, no, I don't have any like formal training at all. Um, my first real tutorial example, I, anybody who's heard of SketchUp, it's like a 3D modeling software and it's, I don't know, 10, 12 years old now. 
but I was in a, a woodworking course at the local community college and the teacher was recommending, hey, you know, if, if you want to design your stuff here, you can use SketchUp. And this is like a room of like 60 year old white dudes. <laughs> and I'm like, there's no way these guys are going to be able to use a 3D modeling software like for, in time for the next class. But I had been using SketchUp myself for my own projects. And I was like, well, I, I can probably teach someone how to use this. So I made a series of videos and I think I, there's six or seven uh, and they're still up on YouTube. And I taught people how to use SketchUp in the mind of like a woodworker. So it's like, here's how to do a certain kind of joint. Here's how to do this. this. It wasn't like building a house. It was building like a piece of furniture. And knowing the terminology that woodworkers use, it was very easy to show like, here's how you do a mortise. Here's how you do a tenon. And I still get, I don't know, a dozen comments a week. Everyone's like, oh my God, this is amazing. I tried so many tutorials on SketchUp. I can never figure this out. Yours is the one that did it for me. So I, yeah, I just seem to kind of have like a, a easy, a natural way to like teach people complicated concepts. I guess it's, it's sort of that... Uh, there's a famous book, Zen Mind, Beginner's Mind, where most people's problem with teaching is you become more and more an expert and then you forget what it's like to not know those things. So you assume everybody knows this huge catalog of knowledge already, just like you do. The curse of knowledge is another term they use for that. Yeah, so I, uh, maybe I just there's just something in my brain that lets me sort of remember what it's like to have no idea what I'm doing because I usually don't have any idea what I'm doing. <laughs> like there are several times, even, even with this tutorial, with the Redwood tutorial, where I would sort of forget how we did something. So I'd go down the path, the tutorial, I'm like, oh, wait, that's not how that works. And I'd have to go research it. And then I realized, you know what, if I made that mistake and I sort of know what I'm doing, someone who has no idea what they're doing, they're probably going to make that mistake too. So I would sort of leave sort of a little bit of that path in the tutorial and be like, now you might think you need to do this, 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 but here's why you don't. And then we step back and we go and do it the right way. So the couple of those little mistakes like that, which I'll keep in there just to, just to get, try to like match my, match their mindset. To, to what they're learning of where they, they might make mistakes and it's no big deal and here's how you what, here's what you do to correct it i should really read the second tutorial part i don't think i've read it fully i think i've looked at the test page and the story page and that's it it was funny too because i was like sort of dreading writing it because when i started out in ruby like i was not a testing guy because i came from cold fusion which they didn't care about tests so i'm into ruby and i'm like oh man this is great and everyone's like you should be writing tests you should write tests i'm like oh man this is this is like twice the amount of work <laughs> why would i write these tests and eventually you're on enough projects where everyone else is writing tests. You're like, all right, I got to write tests now. And you get into it and you're like, oh, this, you know, this isn't that bad. Because it's kind of cool. It's like verifying what I do. And then that one time where you have a production deploy and the deploy stops because a test failed. And you're like, oh my God, that just saved my life. And then that sells you on testing. And now you really want to write the test because you remember what that, that scaring feeling in your soul. Like my life was almost ruined, but my test saved me. And it makes you want to write more tests and better tests. So... It was just weird for me going and then writing the testing part of the tutorial, being a guy who doesn't write tests. And now I'm trying to write tests in JavaScript and it's a nightmare trying to find the right documentation. And there's so many different ways to do it. So I'm the one now has to distill all that down and try to simplify it and write tooling for Redwood to make testing easier. So it's just in my own mind, it was just ironic that I was the one that ended up doing that. <laughs> Which kind of test is it again? It's the, not the one where it goes through the user interface. That's end to end, is that? I always fall back to the Rails terms, which was integration testing was like testing basically the, the actual UI. So, it, you know, there was a, a tool, Selenium, where it would actually render the page in memory. You would... Well, like Cypress. Yeah, you would actually click a button, see that something happened, see that new text appeared on the page. That was like the quote-unquote integration test in Rails. And then they had what they called uh, controller tests, which was just the controller end. It's like when you first make a request back to the server, the controller is what answers that request. So you pretend the UI doesn't exist and you just send the right parameters in through the URL, basically. And the controller test would handle that. And then you had unit tests, which were more of like testing the actual models, the models, the, the code that would talk to the database. So that was like another level down, really far divorced from the UI and requests and HTTP sessions. You, like, you didn't have access to any of that. You were basically just getting raw data in and out of the database, basically, and seeing how it was manipulated by the models. So it's a little different in Redwood because we don't have those same layers. We call them like service tests. So that's what's testing your service. That's probably more like the, the classical unit test. When you say service, that's an API test. Personally, I think of the API as the GraphQL layer because that's what's the API like talking over the internet APIs to me. And then the service is like those, you know, we call them like the business logic sort of units. So services can use other services without going out over the public API. So we call them like service tests. And then we don't have like formal GraphQL tests right now because the syntax is so simple. You're not really writing any logic into your GraphQL SDLs right now. So that doesn't seem as necessary to have tests for. We would like to have something in there to verify that your, you know, that your GraphQL interface is what you think it is. But right now the SDL language is so simple, it's probably not as necessary. And then we have our, our just testing, which is testing more of the React 
front end. So, you know, if this person's logged in, does this link appear on the page? It's using like React, I always forget what it's called. It's the most generic name, right? It's like called testing library. React testing library, can see dogs. Yeah, it's like the most generic name ever. It seems like I'm getting it wrong, but that's actually literally what it's called. So we're actually, we're using that to render the React component. And then you have a, an object called screen and screen is basically what was rendered. And now you're testing, is this on the page? Is this on the page? This, did this change? Those are kind of our, for lack of a better, two layers of testing. We have the, the front end React testing and then we have the services testing, which is where most of your logic is going to be. Not as much in the GraphQL layer. One of the tests that I think I'd like to see, and this is actually a problem that I noticed with Everfund is role testing for example all your endpoints have different authentication so one you need to be admin one needs to be author or whatever is you can literally just say can you access this function with this role and if it comes back yes then that's like wrong a failed test and if it comes back no then that's like a complete test if that makes sense because that's my worst nightmare <laughs> So we have that in our services testing. So for us, that's kind of where we recommend right now you put your authentication is in the service. So before like you have a service and like in the tutorial, we have one called delete comment and you'll have a check in there, require auth role as moderator. So if you don't have the moderator role, you should not be able to delete a comment. And we've added something to Redwood and it's a function we call mock current user. So right before that, in your test, before that test runs, you say mock current user and here's the roles they'll have. And now if any of those auth functions are hit within the service, it's going to use that mock to user as if they were really logged in, even though you just faked it for the test. And then you'll be able to either pass or not pass that test. And there's a test, there's a, there's a test in the part two tutorial that does that. I would really like to first get like a beginner's introduction to mocking, what mocking is, what considerations go into mocking. Cause this is something that like, it's a, it's a specific kind of testing. I think of mocking is like, it's a subset of testing and it's something that a lot of people talk about. And I know a lot of people were asking for it in Redwood. So it's like, what is a mock? How is a mock different from a test? And like, what goes into all that? This gets into like almost religious levels of fervor of what people believe on this. So I will just give you my view, but please don't cancel me on Twitter for anything I'm about to say, because <laughs> this is just how I feel. And again, this is a lot of this is influenced from the Rails community. So maybe the JavaScript community will go a different way, but this is the, how we do it in Rails. So this is currently sort of how we do it in Redwood. In theory, right, you got to test and a test should test one thing. And it would be great if everything you need to do in your test was handled within your own code that you wrote. But every once in a while, you're going to have something like talking to a third party API, for example. And generally in your tests, you don't want to be testing that the entire stack of all code that was ever been written to let you talk to an API, right? XHR requests and HTTP headers. And you don't, you don't care about any of that. Like that's a settled spec that exists like that http itself is not going to break so you don't want to be testing http that's not going to be your problem this is where the idea of a mock comes in so you have a mock object which will simulate all that stuff so it'll simulate the third-party api doing its thing which you have no control over right they're going to do their thing so you shouldn't really be going out to them to try to test them you assume they're going to respond correctly or you can mock out that it's going to return a certain error and now you test that your code responds correctly. So you really want it to be testing your code, not somebody else's code that you have no control over. So in theory, in the Rails world, that's where the mocks come in. Is you're going to mock out this functionality that doesn't belong to you. <laughs> so, you know, like in Redwood, for example, when you do authentication, you're going out to Netlify, or you're going out to, what is it, Superbase, or you're going out to Magic Links. And they're going to do whatever they need to do to prove that you're who you say they are, and they're going to give you back some known data. So you're going to mock out, in Redwood, you're going to mock that known data assume that they do their job. Here's what you get back. And now does your code respond to that data correctly? Does it parse out the email and the name and their roles properly? So that's where our mocks come in. So Jest has a bunch of built-in mocks and we've added one like mock current user. That's our own custom flavor of that. So this is something that people talk a lot about in the serverless world, because it's the same thing. They have all these different external things they're, they're working with. And I hear some people in that world who think that at the end of the day, it's not even worth mocking because you're never going to be able to mock the behavior perfectly, that you just should test the thing with the actual thing. And it's not, that's just what you have to do. So what would you say is something like that? Yeah, that's the other side of the argument. It's like, you know, the problem with mocks is they're fragile, which means that, you know, if that service you're mocking changes in any way, well, your mock doesn't know about that. So now your mock is going to respond the way it used to respond. And your code is going to respond to that the way it used to respond. So you'll, you won't know when that change happens, which is bad. That's sort of the downside of mocks. 
in the Ruby community, they had a, a tool called VCR. And what VCR would do was record a response. So the very first time you ran your test, it would go out to that third-party service for real and do the real thing. And then it would record the response back. So the second time you ran the test, you'd hit the recording. And the theory was, you know, once a day or once a week or once a month, you would clear out those recordings and start over. So you were always getting the latest version of what the third-party service would return. It's a really clever name <laughs> then. Yeah, VCR, right? Because it was recording, yeah. yeah. And it was like, yeah, you yeah. record cassettes, they were called. It was really, really smart. So I don't know if, if there's something like that in the JavaScript community yet, but that was a really neat workaround to that problem of fragile mocks. For me personally, like I, I would rather have the mock and have it all internal. Like for me, I'd love it if I can run my whole test suite and not even be connected to the internet. You know, if you don't use mocks, you have to always be have a, have a good connection out. You can't be working on a plane and testing your code because it's just it, that third-party service won't respond and you'll be screwed. So I personally, I will accept the danger of a mock becoming out of date to have the benefits of. Speed's another big factor too, right? As soon as you go into a third-party service, there's hundreds or thousands of milliseconds you're waiting for responses to come back and it slows your test suite down that, that much more. That was a big thing in the Rails community is the bigger and bigger your test suite got, the longer and longer it got to take to run. You'd hear these horror stories of test suites that took 30 minutes or an hour or so. You know, I, the idea with testing is you really want to run your, every time you make a code change, you're running your suite, you're running your suite, and the longer and longer it takes to run, the less often you're going to run it. And pretty soon that test suite, it becomes useless because nobody wants to run it anymore. And now you've kind of defeated the whole purpose of writing the tests in the first place. So you want to keep them short, snappy, and fast. So I like mocks personally. So something else you've done in Redwood that I understand, but I think I don't fully, the Redwood migration tool. That's built on top of Prisma. So could you just explain that? Redwood doesn't really do anything with migrations. All we do is just that call you make on the command line. It's yarn redwood db migrate. We just give that call to Prisma and say, hey, Prisma, migrate yourself. So we don't actually do anything on top of that other than just give it a common interface because otherwise you'd be doing yarn Prisma. I forget what their, their full thing is. It's like migrate and then... It's like yarn Prisma migrate. I think you then had to use the developer flag experimental flag there's like an up right there's an up and then there's dash dash experimental yeah so we're just sort of hiding all that behind the comments so that way all the commands with redwood are always rw something so we just put their command behind ours i can explain how prisma's migrations themselves work not that part but you build a tool to migrate data so prisma migrates the tables people have complained about this naming similarity so there's DB migrations, this is what we call them, DB migrations, which is Prisma's migrating the database. And then we have data migrations, <laughs> which is migrating the actual data in the database. There's all kinds of occurrences where, let's say you have a uh, user record and you're storing more and more columns of data in there and this table is getting wider and wider and wider and you realize, you know what, I got to denormalize this. I want to split out their preferences, whatever, into a separate table. So Prisma will let you easily create a separate database table called preferences with whatever columns you want. But Prisma doesn't provide a way to now move that data from the user record into the preference record. So that's where data migrations came in, which is the part that I wrote, where you can programmatically say, okay, now that the preference table exists, loop through every user, for example, loop through every user, remove these five columns of data, put them over in preferences instead. So it's actually moving the data itself, not the structure of the database. Does that help explain it? Yeah, and is that built into the tutorial or does that just run in the background? We don't have it in tutorial because we didn't we didn't get that complex with the data. It's just sort of another feature of Redwood we haven't mentioned yet. Maybe we'll do that in the optimization because that would be, right, you're optimizing your database tables. You might need to migrate your data. Hmm. But Prisma is actually going to steal our lunch and they're going to add, they're adding data migrations themselves pretty soon. They realized that was like an important thing. <laughs> so they're going to have a version of that coming out soon. Are they? Because we asked Jason and Jason said, I don't know. <laughs> Last we talked to them, they said they were. They have a new version of migrations, which Redwood isn't on yet, but we're upgrading soon, probably the next release, where they've completely redone their migration engine. And previously, it was like this this uh, sort of SDL and JSON. So you would say, here's the database. Here's what I want my database table to look like. And then they would diff that against the current database, and they'd have this JSON file that had all these changes that needed to run. Well, they've scrapped all that now, and they're basically just writing out SQL. So a migration file would just be a flat SQL file that's like, here's all the database changes in SQL. So a data migration is just more SQL. So you just basically write the SQL to migrate your data. So the downside of that is now you're not using JavaScript, you're using SQL to do like loops and conditionals, which isn't the most fun thing to do in the world, but it is possible to do. So we'll see if they actually add on a, a JavaScript layer on that so you can write JavaScript. But last I heard, it was just gonna be straight SQL and it would just run like another migration because it's all SQL now. It's getting to repeater. So what is repeater? As you start building out more complex apps, you'll probably find that at some point, 
you need to do something like out of band, behind the scenes. I mean, it might be in response to a user request, but you can't make the user wait for it. So for example, like a classic example is you, someone wants, a, there's an invoicing app and you need to generate a PDF. And depending on the library you use, that might take 10 seconds to generate a PDF. So you don't want the user sitting there with a spinner. So you'll have something generally called like background, a background job or background task where the user says, I want a PDF, click. And then behind the scenes, it says, okay, something, go out and create this PDF for me. Let me know when it's done or email the user when it's done rather than the user sitting there waiting. The Jamstack, that's kind of a problem with the Jamstack. Everything needs to kind of be in a response to a user doing something. You have these lambdas, you know, a user clicks a button, thing goes off to lambda. Currently, especially in um, AWS, lambdas can only run for so much time. I think the maximum it can run is like 15 minutes before the lambda will shut down. So if you have a job processing a lot of data for whatever reason, and it's gonna take more than 15 minutes, you're kind of screwed. Like you can't do that on the Jamstack currently. A background job will need to occasionally need to run for more than 15 minutes. We said we needed one for a, a sort of a, a project we were doing at Tom's uh, nonprofit, Preston Warner Ventures, where I needed to be able to, you could say, hey, uh, remind me tomorrow to contact this person. So we needed a background job service. So I had this idea for repeater.dev and it's, don't tell anybody, it's a Ruby on Rails app behind the scenes <laughs> because that's just your traditional server architecture. You run the server, you do whatever you want on it. When you say oh, you want a background job, you make a request out to repeater and you say, hey, repeater, 24 hours from now, hit this URL this URL being a Lambda endpoint, a classic Jamstack endpoint. And Repeater, then the Ruby on Rails app, accepts that request. It's a, still just a GraphQL request. It accepts it, puts a record in its own database in Repeater, and it has a process. There's a gem for Ruby called delayed job. And it's a process that checks the database every like 10 seconds. Hey, any jobs to run? Any jobs to run? Any jobs to run? And in 24 hours, that job will be ready to run. So then it brings that job in and says, hey, call this URL. It hits that URL, which is your Lambda endpoint. And then it records the response. So basically all a repeater does is it makes an HTTP request and records a response, but it does it at a time that you define or repeatedly. So you can say, do this every hour or every day. Um, and that solved that problem like instantly. And so we've had, I don't know, 200 people, something sign up. We haven't really promoted it all that much and it's totally free service right now. DT, David, I'm not trying to pronounce his last name. Thrysen? Thrysen? It's a Swedish name. It's hard to pronounce. <laughs> yeah. He uh, parses a lot of uh, Twitter data, tens of thousands of tweets, I think. And you can't do that all in line, just the lambdas aren't gonna run long enough. So he makes a ton of jobs on repeater and a lot of it we built to like kind of help him for what he's needing to do. So he's doing a ton of jobs all the time. It's been running great. Yeah, so it's a free service, repeater.dev. If you need background job processing for your Jamstack app, your FS Jamstack app, let us know. Any stickers? Uh, not for repeater, but there are, you can get stickers for Redwood. Have you guys promoted the Redwood stickers? Not as much as we should. We should just put a little tagline at the end of each episode saying that don't forget your stickers. Yeah, yeah. Anybody, if you want uh, Redwood stickers, go to redwoodjs.com slash stickers. There's also a link right on the homepage. And we will send you three stickers anywhere in the world for free. As long as you can get mail there, we'll send you some. So come and get some. But yeah, I should, get some re I should make some repeater stickers. Yeah, you're at one of my talks once and you, you made some sort of comment about stickers. And you can still find this in the video for it. And I went, yes, stickers. There would be no Redwood without stickers. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. Is it, is it really a real project if it doesn't have stickers? That's the question. Yeah. So do you know anything about Quarrel and how Repeater is similar or different? Very superficially, like Quarrel is kind of a predefined sort of you, how do I explain it? <laughs> so the way I wrote Repeater is just, you just make a GraphQL call like any other GraphQL call and say, here's a job, run that for me. Quarrel is like an actual library you bring into your code and you kind of like define your job with Quarrel's sort of function syntax. I'm not explaining this very well. <laughs> that makes a lot of sense, actually, because um, so you're saying that repeater is something that you go onto like a dashboard and do that, whereas like Quarrel is something you're actually bring into your code. So repeater, you don't actually bring into your project. I wrote a repeater dev JS package you can bring in, but all it's doing is making a GraphQL call. So you can make that yourself really easily. It's, it's not doing anything special, but I believe Quarrel is really built on this special library that he has where you... It's, it's an abstraction of webhooks basically. Yeah, is that how it works? Yes, yeah, so... But he still has a service, right? He's got a service running somewhere that's that's executing these jobs. Yeah, and that service pings the webhooks, his abstractive layer of webhooks. How Quirrell works, you basically give a task, so you say task one, then you would have a Quirrell file, oh, well, it's a function that would have async functions in for like task one, task two, task three. So any code in that task one would be ran when that endpoint gets hit, basically, 
in 24 hours time. You would have like email new user in 50 minutes function. And in 50 minutes, it would ping that webhook. And then that webhook would then run whatever code is in that function, if that makes sense. Yeah, I think so. I haven't used it personally. Repeater felt more like very much more like the Rails way to do it to me. So that, that's the way I built it. <laughs> Common theme in this episode, it sounds like. Yeah, exactly. Right. This theme should really just be called Rails. It should be called Ruby on Rails. <laughs> Rob loves Ruby. So personally, like I like the repeater way, but the curl way is very interesting. It feels more like a JavaScript, a very JavaScript-ish way to do it. And mine feels more like a, a Ruby way to do it, I guess. <laughs> One of my last questions is, what are you most excited about with 1.0 of redwood oh geez i wish you would have prepared me for this question so i could think of like a pithy interesting answer <laughs> um how are you not expecting this question 1.0 is coming up i know <laughs> this is gonna be the only question anyone's gonna ask for the next two months so get ready buddy <laughs> <laughs> i can't think of anything like necessarily revolutionary that's going to be in 1.0 that isn't already like we're sort of already hinting to it in the current Redwood. We're hoping to have some SSR, some server-side generation, or it's not, sorry, sorry, server-side rendered. Server-side rendering. Server-side rendering, you know, as soon as Redwood 0.1 came out, like the, one of the first issues that came up on GitHub was, do you guys support SSR? <laughs> so like people have been begging for that. Do you mean SSG, not SSR? So server-side generation. Sorry, we're doing server-side rendering. So at build time, we'll render out a flat HTML file. That's SSG. Is it? Because we keep calling it SSR. I'm pretty sure SSR is when the server is spitting a HTML document out to the client. And SSG is when you're going to say, look through these whole files, generate code, HTML into them, and then rehydrate them when JavaScript loads. I'm pretty sure that's SSG. But we're not doing that on the fly. Like there's no server that's sending you pages. Like at deploy time, we're generating all the HTML and it's done. And that's what gets deployed. I think it's SSG. Are you sure? Because people a lot smarter than me keep calling it SSR. <laughs> well, the problem is people who say SSG are usually saying static site generation. So that's why all these acronyms lead to far more confusion than clarification. I've been doing this by myself in Everfund. The package that I've been using is React Snap. But they don't say SSR or SSG. So that's pre-rendering. Pre-rendering is static generation. I realized, I just learned this like a week ago. There was the saying pre-rendering instead of static generation for some reason. What you've just described is static generation as you're going to render HTML to the client. So it's SSP, server-side pre-rendering. The prop you give it, you give your route is pre-render. Does that help? <laughs> the most basic thing that I can understand is whenever you load a HTML file in React, that HTML file has one empty DOM that then the React tree injects into. With SSG, it builds that DOM into that div. Then when the client renders, it will then rehydrate over that standard code, that generated code. That's what I understand. And I thought that was SSG. I just put a link in the chat. You guys, do you guys have show notes? You can put this in the show notes. Yes, yes we do. This is the PR that's open that Danny, so Danny's the one working on, I'll call it pre-render because that's the name of the prop. <laughs> He's working on pre-render and here's his, his draft PR for how he explains how it works. Okay, that's great. We're going to have Danny on tomorrow, so we'll we'll ask him. We'll have a whole conversation about this, so you, we don't need to get into it too much. Yes, yes, please. But I, I, as we were talking about it, like we had a meeting about it with the core group yesterday, and we kept saying, we kept calling it SSR, but maybe technically it's SSG. All I know is like your marketing page, right? You would literally, from the CDN, get a fully rendered... That's not been hydrated yet. Right, you, you can have JavaScript turned off, and you will get your full marketing page done. If you have JavaScript turned on, it will then get rehydrated and replaced. Does that help? Danny's calling it pre-rendering, and I agree, because you're rendering to the HTML before the hydration, because of rehydration, obviously. It's a complex thing that I've only truly understood how it works with React Snap and learning about it myself. It's complex. He's using, I forget what it's called, React? That was called like React DOM Render or something. It's basically like a server that just renders out HTML from a React component. I can't remember the name of the 
This is an NPM package. That's what he's using. <laughs> yeah, React DOM server. To why I understand off the top of my head, you'll basically need to create Chrome that will then render the whole application, capture the HTML structure, then inject it into your static HTML file. He specifically said like that does not have to happen. You don't have to have a headless browser to do this. However, it's working. We got a lot of questions for Danny. All right. Is there anything else that you'd like to talk about before we close it out here? If you want to just talk about like the theory of like tutorial driven development in general, there was a blog post. We can put this in the show notes. There's a blog post from Tom back in 2010 called Readme Driven Development, where he sort of like proposed this idea of as a developer, everybody wants to start with the code, get to the code, let's code it, code it, code it. But he was like, at some point, someone else has to use this code. Writing the readme to start with forces you to think about how this code is gonna like gonna look and how it's gonna feel to someone who has no idea what your code does or how it works. And it'll get you to make some decisions early on that's once you get into the code, it's a little too late to make a make a nice interface. So it sort of forces you to think about the interface from the start. And tutorial-driven development is sort of like the next evolution of that. So it's like not even like how you describe it. It's like how literally, how do you teach this to somebody? If it's not a really simple idea and easy to teach, then maybe the code, the, the interface you're, you're thinking about is too complex. So it should be easy to teach first. And the analogy I like to think of is like, you know, is that famous give someone a fish and you feed them for a day, teach them to fish and you feed them for a lifetime. So when you write your code, you're not necessarily giving the fish, you're giving them the fishing pole. You're like, here's a pole and here's your tackle and here's your bait, good luck. So they technically have the tools, but they need to figure out for themselves like how to fish. But the tutorial is teaching them how to fish, right? So be the teacher, not the fishing pole giver. That sounded much better in my head. That didn't come out that great. <laughs> well, thank you for being here, Rob. I can say that you absolutely taught me to fish. So I really appreciate that. I appreciate everything you've done on the Redwood team. So thanks a lot. Well, thank you. Thank you very much for saying that. Yeah, we've got tons of great feedback from the tutorial. And I'm really glad it's, it's resonating with people and teaching them Redwood. Thanks, guys. Been great. Thank you. I'm sure a lot of us appreciate the tutorial, especially Anthony. Anthony very much appreciates the tutorial. But yeah, I think the biggest takeaway you can take from the tutorial is that it's friendly to people doing web development for the first time or the thousandth time. And that obviously is a very hard balance. The other thing to say is that if your native language is not English and you would like to translate the tutorial and the documentation, that is currently happening over at, is it learn.redwood? We're still like tweaking it a little bit, so it's not technically live yet, but it will be learn.redwoodjs.com. That's where the tutorial will live and probably eventually all the docs, but they'll all be like IE team ready. So anybody can volunteer and help us help us translate into your native language. We'll try and go for every language, especially pirate. What is that? I haven't heard of that one. You never heard of, I think it was a Facebook joke. Yeah, you can get like your things translated. Yeah, you can get your Facebook translated to pirate speak. So like all oh, the pirate. Facebook isms would be, yeah, it'd be pirate stuff. Yeah, that was a while ago. That's a, that's, a, that's a deep cut. That's a good one. I don't know how long ago that was, but I remember it. Well, yeah, thank you for your time. Thank you, guys.